Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipper, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and your co-host for today. This is the latest in more than 200 online programs the club has produced in the past five months. You can find all of our upcoming programs, as well as audio and video from our past programs, and of course, how you can help support our program production at commonwealthclub.org. I'd like to introduce Michelle Miao. She's a longtime member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors and a longtime producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show. John, thank you so much. It's good to see you, and thank you all for joining us. It's now my honor to introduce you to our guest today, our special guest. Nikki Solis is a 24-year veteran of the Public Defender's Office, currently assigned to Juvenile Hall. She's the youngest of seven children and was brought to the United States as an infant. She and her family were undocumented until she was a teenager. When she was 19 in the 1980s, she came out to her family and moved to San Francisco, the beacon of gay liberation. She received a scholarship to attend UC Hastings College of the Law. Nikki has been a lifelong activist for social justice. She has served on the boards of the ACLU of Northern California, Women Defenders, and La Raza Lawyers Association. She is a member of Mayor Newsom's Criminal Justice Court Steering Committee and is currently serving on the State Bar Criminal Law Advisory Commission after being appointed to it by Governor Brown. Let's welcome Nikki to the program. Nikki, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Michelle. Good morning, John. Good morning, Michelle. Just a few corrections. I, the advisory commission is, I'm no longer on the board because it's now uh, defunct. So they've changed the rules there. And I was appointed by the board of governors. Thank you. Thank you so much for that uh, clarification. We've had you on before. And so I think it was it was part of your, your bio, but you know, that's the, the great thing about our leaders here, especially in the Bay Area is the, the bio changes and it adds and you keep on doing so much great work in the community. Um, I think, you know, we should, we should expand on that. It was just this morning that I got the opportunity to read a little bit more um, your, your piece on medium.com about immigrating to the States, but also meeting your idol. Uh, let's start there and get to know you before we talk about, you know, who. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, uh, my family brought me here with my mom and dad. We came seven kids and my, my aunt. I actually have a picture in the background at the train station, the L train in the South Bronx. Um, my brother, my older brother is missing in that photo, but uh, all of us are uh, otherwise in there. And uh, yeah, we were undocumented. We came here and the story on Medium is about uh, Tom Seaver, uh, my childhood idol who was the heart and soul of the, the New York Mets, the franchise, as they call them. And it so happens that on Sunday, I told my kids, uh, Sunday the 30th, the anniversary of our arriving in New York was the 31st. So I said, I really want to write this piece about arriving here and the significance of it during 1969, the Miracle Mets. Even though I was one, I explained how, how I came to be loving this country and, and, and being you know, part of the fabric. It turns out that I wrote the piece and published it on the 31st to find out that um, Tom Seaver had died that same day. So it was very sad, um, but uh, I was glad that I could at least share my story. Thank you so much for, for sharing it. And um, we'll, we'll dedicate the program in memory of Tom Seaver today and, and to the American dream. And so with that being said, uh, let's jump into our conversation. You know, you wrote another article on USA Today, uh, went very quickly, very viral, um, especially because it came after the announcement that presidential candidate Joe Biden has picked uh, Senator Kamala Harris as his vice presidential um, candidate. And, and of course, the discussion has been going on ever since Senator Harris even ran, you know, herself as as president, but this discussion around her being a prosecutor, a top cop, and uh, and some some controversy around that. But your piece was really centered around the facts, the facts that you you worked with her, even as a public defender. She's a prosecutor. Some would say that you, you both worked on you know the opposite sides, but you're able to come uh, come through in the article to state that she actually, in your opinion would be the most progressive prosecutor at the time in the state of California. Let's start there. 
Yeah, well, kind of 15 years ago, um, most, if not all, prosecutors and district attorneys in California were in a race to the bottom to see who could be toughest on crime without regard to the systemic racism and the systemic failures of the criminal justice system. And uh, Kamala Harris simply wasn't in that race to the bottom. She came out, she opposed and uh, got elected and opposed Terrence Hallinan, who's a very progressive DA. But uh, Senator Harris had a, a different way of, of going about it. She said, we don't have to be tough on crime, we have to be smart on crime. And so I um, met her several times, I talked to her several times, and I really liked uh, Terrence Helena and I loved his policies, I loved how progressive he was. But at the same time, what Senator Harris was saying when she was running for office was something different in the sense of she will be, she will implement these uh, alternatives to programs and she will do it in a in a very efficient way um, we actually disagreed on a lot of things you know my then boss jeff adachi uh who has since passed away you know he led the charge in uh trying to get programs implemented and and having alternatives to incarceration but it can't be denied that then da harris actually supported and implemented many of the programs that we put forward as, as public defenders. I was in management. I walked through the tenderloin with Senator Harris, with Jeff Adachi, with Governor Newsom and other department heads to establish the Criminal Justice Center. We did a tour of several um, office spaces and uh, potential places to establish that court that still exists. And it's an alternative to incarceration and an alternative to felony convictions with wraparound services. Actually, that, that's a really interesting part of it. And I, I'm hoping you can go into that a little bit more because we've heard occasionally other people in you know, different jurisdictions around the country talk about this kind of an approach. Explain more about exactly what this center does and why it's important that people don't have those convictions, you know, felony convictions or, you know, how this is, um, you know, I assume seen as a, a more successful way of dealing with the underlying problems. Well, the interesting part is it it was uh, spearheaded by Governor Newsom um, because a lot of the merchants in the Union Square area were frustrated with the petty thefts, um, with other um, so-called quality of life crimes, and so it came about. Um, through that uh, Union Square Merchants Association. I actually went to one of their meetings back in the day. I believe Paul Henderson, who was then in the DA's office, came along with me. But what then Mayor Newsom did was he learned of a model in New York, the Red Hook model in Brooklyn called Community Justice Center or Community Courts. And we work with the, the, the Center on Court Innovation in order to establish CJC in San Francisco. And we as public defenders pushed back on it because it was originally a quality of life court where uh, they were trying to model it after uh, a, a New York court, uh, Red Hook, Brooklyn, and the Mid-Manhattan uh, Criminal Justice Center, where the laws are different in California. So we had to push back and actually uh, advocate for crimes, felony crimes to get into the court. And we push hard for that. And Jeff Adachi pushed hard for that. Um, it's important for folks to know that the, in San Francisco, as liberal as we may be, there still is a disparity as far as race with regard to incarceration. You know, we have three to 4% of uh, African-Americans in San Francisco, but African-Americans make up over 60% of those incarcerated in the county jail. And so we still have a problem. And I think that Kamala wanted to address that problem. And the point of having wraparound services is that if folks have a mental health issue, if they have an issue with regard to housing, if they have an issue with regard to addiction, if they are just struggling and it leads them to this place we need to do something to get them out. 
And so that is what we were striving for as far as creating a um, community court. Staying on, you know, being um, smart on crime and that being kind of the attitude at the time, you know, she also has publicly spoken up about, you know, making changes within the system. And so do you see, you know, this, this example of uh, her efforts to, to reduce the felony charges as related to marijuana-related uh, crimes at the time, do you see that kind of, you know, maybe that was part of her inner workings of being or setting herself apart from the actual system? Yes. I mean, there is no doubt that she had a progressive approach. I'm not the only one who can say these things. I think the op-ed was helpful to people because I was on the opposing side. And so I have no interest in, uh, you know, not telling the truth about uh, what was occurring at the time she was district attorney. And I don't have any affiliation with the campaign, but there are a lot of district attorneys who were in the administration who can speak on these issues. And they will tell you, Tim Szilard, as I said, Paul Henderson, they will tell you, all the programs that they implemented. Latifa Simon, she's an elected official. She's on the BART board. She uh, ran the, um, the, the youth court uh, that was known as mentor court. And she can speak to how Kamla moved through the system and actually supported and implemented these, these plans. And it's important to note that, you know, a lot of times, we put the white hat on the prosecutor and we say, look, these are the people who are doing good in society. But that wasn't necessarily the case, at least not in my opinion, when you incarcerate people and mostly people of color at a disproportionate rate, rate I think it's a major problem. So what, what I think what we need to do is sure, we need to be critical of our leaders. We need to actually hold them accountable and I think the other narrative that was being told was, you know, valid. You want to, you want to be critical of your leaders, but at the same time, I think you have to make sure that you t give the whole context. And as far as marijuana cases, I remember talking to a reporter for a lengthy period at the San Jose Mercury News, and I believe I got maybe one or two lines in the entire article, but what we were talking about was how she would reduce these possession for sale of marijuana cases to simple possession. So when people look at the record and when people look at the statistical data, sure, you will see simple possession cases, but those were uh, basically alternative to folks having felony convictions for possessing marijuana. And as far as simple possession of marijuana, and I don't mean to get too granular here, those cases, if you had a little bag or something, a dime bag or something of weed, you're not going to get prosecuted in the criminal courts uh, during that time period. And I think that was something that was very unique to San Francisco. And sure, it started with District Attorney Terrence Hallinan, but it continued. And those people who were in power in the district attorney's office can speak to that as well. They didn't prosecute simple possession cases of marijuana when 11357B cases, the excuse me, the example I gave is the dime bags. She, she did make an effort to focus on uh, violent crime and gun involved crimes. And at least from some reading I was doing, the conviction rate went up during her time. So it's kind of interesting when you, you were kind of looking at some of the national political arguments over her where, you know, the Trump administration hasn't, or the Trump campaign, I should say, hasn't been clear how they want to try to focus on her. They, they, when she was first announced as uh, Biden's running mate, she was seen, she, they were trying, they were at the same time saying she's, you know, weak on crime, but she's a former prosecutor. She's pro cops. They were trying to, I guess, see what was going to actually kind of, you know, throwing the spaghetti against the wall, seeing what would stick is the higher conviction rate that she was able to get in particular on, on, you know, the homicides and violent crimes, was that a result of being able to clear the deck of some of those other things that shouldn't have been up at that level? Or was she a better prosecutor or what? I mean, can you talk a bit about her conviction rate for violent crime? Well, I, I always think that measuring conviction rates 
as a success uh, of, of a prosecutor, the, 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 you know, the, the bar is very dangerous. I think that when you st- take a step back and you consider that a prosecutor's job is not to win, it is to do justice. And so to actually look at a prosecutor's record, such as um, uh, Senator Harris's when she was DA, and actually extract from that something positive is dangerous. It sets this, this precedent that the, the, the numbers matter. Numbers shouldn't matter when it comes to criminal justice, except in the, in the way of statistical data to see if you're disproportionately incarcerating people and you're disproportionately incarcerating people of color or one group or another. When we talk about the, a prosecutor being a politician, I think the measure is what programs have they uh, instituted and did the crime rate go down? You see Chase Boudin, he's getting a lot of flack from the right, but at the same time, he is clearly being effective because the crime rate is dropping in San Francisco. The statistical data shows that. Definitely the public defender's office has a great deal to do with that fact. We have social services program. We have a lot of programs in place. So I think when you look at a prosecutor's record, you should consider how they work with uh, the public defender's office, with the defense bar, with the courts to find alternatives and whether or not crime rate is reduced rather than conviction rates. Because then you get into a dangerous area where you start putting emphasis on guilt rather than justice. So uh, they can, on the Trump side or whomever, they can do whatever they want as far as their campaign. But I think that people ought to realize that if you want change and you want change as far as social justice, if you want to see what happened to George Floyd never happen again, you have to consider alternatives to uh, incarceration. You have to consider uh, holding police officers accountable and police departments accountable. You have to consider funding a public defender's office that will actually be on the front lines in the fight for social justice, because this is the civil rights, you know, issue of our time, right? And so we're marching in the streets after George Floyd, but we've been on the front line fighting for uh, alternatives to incarceration. We've been on the front line holding police accountable. And I think that's very important, um, especially in this time, to make that point. So now we're diving uh, deeper and deeper into the conversation. And I'll tell you, you know, um, even doing some of my reading, going through notes and history and California and uh, the senator's position on certain issues that we're talking about now, I think we all can admit that it gets uh, complex and that's okay. Um, You know, life is complex. But on the issue of, say, for example, right, if we want much more progressive policies and ideas the times have changed in, in today's environment, the, the, the uh, political unrest that we talked about, the protests that are happening that after George Floyd's, um, you know, his death in, in, in a police involved um, incident. We're talking about uh, defunding police, but I, I, I'm, I'm hesitant to use defunding because I think most of the activists who are calling for defunding police are actually talking about redistributing funds so that we have much more holistic programs and, and an approach to some of the issues that we face and not necessarily having to call on police all the time. Um, but if we look at, you know, the Senator's record moving from uh, being a prosecutor and then serving as the attorney general and now uh, as a Senator and then a vice, vi- you know, vice president candidate, uh, she certainly has evolved, I guess is a right term to say that. So, oh, when we go back to to even discussions around her serving as attorney general, there's a lot of controversy around her um, reactions or non-reactions to police shootings at the time. And, and, and I think that we have to be careful and not just, you know, to kind of pull back and do some critical thinking around maybe the decisions that she's made. So, for example, 
Some may say that she didn't move quickly enough or didn't do uh, enough regarding police shootings at the time she served as attorney general. Whereas, you know, if you look at uh, Mario Woods's case, um, I think that I think that she was being, um, you know, calculated, strategic. She wanted local district attorneys to have some decision making with regards to police shootings. But at the same time, it did do some some inner workings when the case of Mario Woods came up. Uh, so I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on you know the, the the evolution piece of it and how these conversations can be complicated. They can exist at the same time, um, and uh, and uh, you know how okay that that can be. And I think that it's natural to do this as you move in your career. I think that. Uh it's important for uh, folks to know that uh, when Senator Harris was district attorney, uh, she didn't prosecute uh, the death penalty. And while there may have been uh, shortcomings and there's valid criticism, I think what we have to look at is, does that politician uh, walk the walk or just talk the talk? And uh, like I said, there's there's valid criticism, and I'm trying to make sure that the narrative is complete because I do have uh, hard facts and hard data on her establishing, you know, um, the 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 girl safe house uh, for kids who are trafficked, for young girls who are trafficked in in prostitution. Um, and there's, it's she clearly didn't prosecute uh, for death. Uh, on a case uh, where she sought life without p- possibility of parole for a young man who shot a police officer and the police officer tragically died. I think that you have to look at um, whether or not they stood strong in the face of a lot of pressure. And she did that. And so uh, while we may have had disagreements, even when she was BA, we had a lot of disagreements about policies and how to move forward and how to make San Francisco better, safer, but also not to disproportionately incarcerate people. She, she listened and uh, there were times where uh, she implemented uh, programs and policies uh, that other DAs would never have done. Specifically on the issue of uh, police conduct and, you know, and or police reform, uh, what's her record there? What is she, did she implement anything then? How did she work with the police chief and uh, the police department when she was a prosecutor? Well, part of the reason why I um, wrote the piece is because I read a piece where they had quoted, um, I'm not even going to say his name, the former uh, president of the POA who has spouted um, you know, ideas that are uh, consistent with white supremacists. Uh, so... Uh, he said something about uh, Senator Harris being a friend of the police officers. Well, you know, that that's his opinion. And I think that there are uh, issues with regard to police officers associations having a lot of influence politically and prosecutors do shy away from prosecuting cases that they ought to involving police officer shootings because of that political pressure and that support. And I think that we need reform in that regard. But as far as uh, Maria Woods, no, she didn't intervene. And that was a tragic situation that should never have happened. Uh, The city accepted liability for it, but there wasn't a criminal prosecution. And uh, she had the power to do something about it. But I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of change now. I think that there is a new movement in the wake of George Floyd, and I don't think that it's necessarily changing police departments or the use of excessive force or the killing of young people of color, but what it is changing is the conversation. And when you see what Senator Harris is saying now, as far as this awakening, I think it's significant because you have people in the suburbs marching. You go to Pacifica, you go to, uh, you know, the East Bay in these towns and cities, Walnut Creek, and you see Black Lives Matters posters on their windows that you would never have seen before. So I think that there's an awakening in, in the United States. Do I think that 
there's a counter to that awakening that uh, involves white supremacy. Absolutely. But she is evolving in the sense that she is saying the things that people need to hear. And she's in a position of power. So that's very important for her to take a hard stand on police accountability. And, and, and staying on, you know, the, we can have these uh, complex conversations because it is complex. You have the, the president, you know, currently uh, out there in the news talking about, you know, a, a Biden presidency along with uh, Kamala Harris would be kind of like this this anarchist land and, and it would be chaos and it would be it would definitely not be law and order. But yet you have <laughs> I think I think out of the, the three between the president, the, the vice president and um, the senator, you have someone who who actually, you know, understands uh, law and order, in, in my opinion, at least. And so let's talk about, you know, why, uh, and I, I would assume that, you know, you writing that piece and setting the record straight, you, you do feel that, you know, Com, uh, Senator Kamala Harris is, uh, you know, a, a great candidate for vice president, can serve this country, um, can bring us together with regards to a conversation around even, you know, criminal justice reform and what safety means for all Americans. Uh, of course, if you're on the front lines as she was, I mean, she was a she was a prosecutor. She saw what was going on. She was a prosecutor in Alameda. She was a prosecutor in San Francisco. I don't think that that necessarily gives somebody the uh, credibility or the qualifications to be vice president or president of the United States. But I think as who she is, um, as she moved through her career, I think she's demonstrated a lot of knowledge and a lot of forward thinking uh, that's important, especially in this time. And when you have an African-American woman in that position who has the experiences that she has, I think she brings realness to the table. And that's what's important. When you look at what she was saying 10 to 15 years ago about being smart on crime, when you consider she wasn't in that race at the bottom, when you consider she established, uh, supported and established behavioral health court, she supported and established the um, criminal justice center, and she implemented a lot of other programs like the youth adult court program that I spoke about that Latifa Simon headed, you have to understand that she was far and above be, be, before her time. And of course she stood on the shoulders of others such as Terrence Allenan, who was progressive, and Jeff Adachi, who actually pushed for these programs. But you also have to understand that she didn't have to adopt them. She didn't have to implement them. She didn't have to support them. She didn't have to create them. But she did because she had an understanding as an African-American person in that time that other district attorneys didn't seem to have. And is that important? Absolutely. It's critical because... In this time, we still have a lot of disparity in treatment in the criminal justice system, and we need change. Here in the Bay Area, we, of course, have seen Kamala Harris for a long time in a number of roles um, and in a number of different venues and things like that. I think nationally, she probably kind of broke into a lot of people, the consciousness of a lot of folks at that Senate hearing with uh, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions. And she particularly was trying to pin him down on his claim about something being a policy. And uh, she just went after him in, I thought, an incredible way because she was not being mean to him. She was not making stuff up. She was not throwing charges. You know, she wasn't doing the, the kind of showboating that you, you often see in those sessions. She was literally saying, okay, you said X, Y, Z. Where does it say X, Y, Z? You said this took place, you know, people talked about this. When were those meetings? Where did those meetings take place? Who was in the, you know, I mean, it was really clear thinking. And of course he could not handle it. Rather uh, fun, certainly for uh, Jeff Session um, uh, critics to watch. But what I'm kind of getting at is you've seen her for a number of times and you, you've worked with her and around her. Has she, is, is that her mind? I mean, when she's uh, going out, you know, approaching a problem, is, is it that meticulous and, and clearly well thought out? And, and does she actually know everything she needs to 
to do because it really in that session it, 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 that was kind of the first time even it clarified for me she is really she seems really really smart sharp you know? and she, yeah. she's a trial lawyer and you have to be able to cross-examine witnesses in order to be effective the very first time i met senator harris was during a trial and right after the a trial uh she was prosecuting and Tony Serra, who's a very famous criminal defense attorney, was the uh, defense attorney in the case. And I went to watch some of the trial to see uh, Tony Serra in action. And I saw Kamala Harris in, in her prime. And uh, it, was, it was pretty impressive. And I saw her closing argument. I never wish a prosecutor well in a, after a trial. And, and I didn't in that instance, but I did meet her at the cafe there. And, and we talked a little bit about um, who, who she was. And I said, oh, I saw you in trial. And, and I, like I said, I never wish a prosecutor luck. So there, there are these defining lines. But when you see somebody perform in that way and they're effective, you kind of take note, you know? And as a defense attorney, you definitely want to say, I want to go up against that person because I think that that person is competent and then it'll really keep me on my toes and it'll make me a better lawyer. But she was sharp. She decimated sessions. I remember what you're, you're talking about. And it was, it was a cross-examination. It was, there was impeachment there of that witness. And it was very interesting to watch because when you watch these hearings, what you hear are politicians grandstanding a lot and having this like, you know, preamble to their question that ultimately is irrelevant and falls flat. Uh, it's more about them proselytizing, if you will. But in that sense, when she conducted that examination, it was a good cross-examination. And I think that when you are a trial lawyer, you think a little bit differently and you want to make sure that you figure out whether or not that person is a truthful witness and in so doing you have to be very tactical and you you have to be stealth in some way and i think that uh she did a great job there and the point being is that when you have that kind of training i think you know how to judge a situation you know how to get something out of somebody or figure things out in a way that the person doesn't really know you're doing so i think it's a very high level skill that will serve her well. If you're joining us live, uh, send us questions if you'd like and, and join in on the conversation. You know, Nikki, I think a few things people can't get over or, or they, they really probably would like the senator to address it. And it, and it becomes, you know, and it, it continues to become part of the conversation of why she's a great candidate or she's not. And the, the few things are, you know, the, the truancy policy that criminalized or, or penalized black mothers for children who are not in school, uh, uh, handling of some wrongful conviction cases that keeps coming up. And, uh, and I, think, I think also, you know, with regards to the marijuana cases, although we're getting a different perspective that, that you've talked about and how she may have handled the cases. I think maybe even her position on legalize, legalizing marijuana, uh, you know, keeps also coming up. And so the question is, do you think that she does need to address the folks who, um, you know, really want to hear from her with regards to this, even if it's, you know what, maybe that was a, a bad decision or a bad policy that I upheld but we're moving forward, we're moving on, and, and here's where I've evolved with regards to criminal justice reform. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. I think that folks should have their concerns assuaged to the extent that it can be. But here's the thing. Uh, what about uh, the vice presidential candidate for Hillary Clinton? Do we remember who he was, Tim Kaine? Uh, no one really examined his record very closely. On Twitter one day, I said, look, if you don't know who this guy is, then here's the Harvard implicit bias study if you're dragging Kamala in this period of time. Because I didn't hear anybody talking about his record or his qualifications. He's a straight white male. That may have made the difference because 
of Kamala's groundbreaking selection and being an African-American woman and and a South Asian woman. But the problem is we can say, look, we're examining her record more closely because this is a, a groundbreaking thing. This is an important time. So what we're saying essentially is because she's a woman of color and this is new, which it shouldn't have been, but it is to us, we're going to scrutinize her more. Well, that's, there's no clearer form of uh, discrimination or treating someone unequally uh, than, you know, having them have to answer questions that someone similarly situated did not have to uh, answer to. So to the extent that she can and to the extent that people are critical of her and want answers as members of the public, as voters, of course, they're entitled to answers. But I think we have to ask ourselves, why are we scrutinizing her more than the presidential candidate uh, at this point in time? Why are people scrutinizing her so closely? And absolutely has to do with the fact that she was a prosecutor She's a woman of color, and she should have a consciousness about the criminal justice system, and perhaps they feel her record didn't show that consciousness. But I'm here to say that I disagree based on my personal experience, that she did have a consciousness. And were there things that she did that we didn't agree with? Absolutely. I mean, when you look at the articles and they talk about the crime lab scandal, yes, it was a scandal. The prosecutor should have turned over evidence that they didn't. But you don't hear the full narrative of what she did in the wake of that scandal. What she did was she formulated a unit, an integrity unit, in order to examine those cases and to remedy the wrong that was committed. And a lot of those cases got addressed and we created remedies along with the public defender's office. She worked with us and we created remedies that way. And so cases were dismissed, cases were reduced, and um, it was an examination of over a thousand cases. But you don't hear people talking about that. You hear people talking about the controversy. And I, I do want to say that now with Chase Boudin, he has a different uh, um, integrity unit uh, that uh, Christine DeBerry and, and George Gascon formed. Uh, but it's important for prosecutors to be held accountable. It's important for them to have an integrity unit. It's important for them to have police accountability. And uh, if they don't, it's important for them to know that as they climb up the political ladder, they will be held accountable. So do I sit here and decry the criticism? No, because it holds these folks accountable. You cannot, you should not be able to get ahead in a political system stepping on the backs of people, particularly poor people, disenfranchised people, people who are dispossessed, and people of color. So if people think that, then they ought to scrutinize and they ought to have answers to those questions. When we're talking about uh, criticism that she's re receiving and, and focus that she's receiving, like you said, that you know isn't directed at. Uh, you know, Tim Kaine, or I don't even remember who John Kerry ran with, you know, could have been you, could have been, I really don't, honestly don't remember. Um, but do you, obviously you expect Republicans to target, you know, the, the, the lead candidates on, on the ticket. Is there, when you're, when you're generally looking at criticism that's going at her and, and, you know, close examination and critical examination, is it, you see a lot of it coming from the left, or is it all kind of, you know, Republican campaign stuff? You know, I uh, do see criticism on the left, and that's why I wrote the piece, because I thought that it wasn't a fair assessment and it didn't give a full uh, context and it didn't really uh, do justice to her record. Um, but as far as Republican criticism, I don't think they know what to do, because if they criticize her, for the progressive programs, then, you know, they're going to rally the left. And if they criticize her for being, you know, soft on crime, I don't think that they have much of a, a, of a record there to, to support that. Um, so I think they're sort of in a bind with her. And so that's why the president 
is just mimicking her, mock, mocking her name and mispronouncing her name because that's pretty much what they have going for them. But um, I think John Edwards might have been the vice presidential candidate for yes. Kerry. I don't know, uh, but I, that's my guess. Uh, 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 but it's a, it makes the point, right, is that we are scrutinizing her in a way that's uh, pretty unprecedented. Um, but that's okay, uh, because we do, as a public defender, it was hard for me to come out and write the piece. Because I feel like, why, why should I defend um, a, a prosecutor at all? But I did feel, to some degree, a civic duty to put that um, out into the universe. And the piece actually came out the day before uh, she was selected. Um, and I, I sent the piece to USA Today. And within 15 minutes, they said, we want to run the piece. And so they ran it. Uh, I believe that the, the day before um, she was selected. And the point of it was, you know, silly me thinking, you know, people ought to know uh, that, you know, her full record and God forbid, you know, the selection is, is made or not made uh, because of what's out there that was, uh, I wouldn't say false, but it didn't tell the entire story of her as a prosecutor in the district attorney's office in San Francisco. It didn't give all the positives. It didn't talk about um, the um, sex trafficking uh, work that she did, the human trafficking work that she did with young girls. Michelle mentioned uh, at the beginning, you know, you're not affiliated with the Biden-Harris campaign. Have you heard from the Biden-Harris campaign after your uh, op-ed in USA Today? Uh, I, I did, uh, but not in any uh, substantial way. Um, but, you know, uh, folks, I think what happened on Twitter uh, was significant, I think, enough for, for folks to get the conversation started. And uh, I think just yesterday, I think I saw that Donna Brazil had uh, posted it way back when, and I had never seen it and, and a few others. Um, but the correspondence was pretty much between me and um, uh, USA Today, but I did um, have a conversation with um, her press secretary, uh, or her now press secretary. You're right. It, it, now I do remember, I remembered sharing the USA Today article the day before the announcement, and the response was very interesting within 24 hours. Um, and so when I posted it, it was, you know, uh, progressive folks who were, no, absolutely not. And it was just an informational post. I didn't have a comment about it either way. It was just like, oh, here's another perspective. And I, I know you, we had you on the program when you were running for judge and I know that, you know, you're a public defender, progressive as, as heck and an LGBTQI person, person of color, immigrant, you know, all these things. It's just another perspective. But then the next day uh, it was announced and then you slowly started to see people sharing the article, sharing, sharing the article. Then you were on Rachel Maddow's program and, uh, and then democracy now, um, What's been the, the response other than, you know, light response from the Biden-Harris team, but especially from your, you know, the progressive colleagues, the progressive camps? Because I think that that started a big conversation around pulling us all in to the actual conversation and being pragmatic and realistic about, you know, uh, Senator Kamala Harris's record and, and that, you know, this election is incredibly important. And, and we have a lot to focus on and we have to be focused. Um, so be interested to hear kind of what the, what the left maybe has said to you or what the response has been. The left were, they were not so happy, but that's my assessment. It was, let me just leave it at, it was controversial, uh, but they know who I am. I am a public defender and I am proud to be a public defender. So for it to come from me, I think it was important, as you said, because I do have a track record of being, being very progressive. And I do wholeheartedly stand by the peace and believe in the peace. As far as uh, folks who are progressive or folks who are defenders, 
they, you know, they challenge me. So be it. I am telling the part of the narrative that hasn't been told, and I don't think it could be denied. I did statistical data for my office. I worked several years in management. I went to meetings with Kamala Harris as DA. I know what I'm talking about. Um, and honestly, I felt there was no one else who was in that position because unfortunately, Jeff, who was my mentor, who I love, whom I love, um, passed away. And I felt if someone there could actually speak to it from the other side and let people know what was going on, it would be important. Did I get a lot of criticism? Absolutely. Was it deserved uh, because of ideology or uh, politics? I, I, I guess so, um, because it, like I said, even in the piece I said, it's hard to defend a prosecutor. Um, every district attorney uh, has incarcerated uh, people in this city and county um, who were disproportionately um, targeted because of race. Like we can't deny there's racism in the system. So that's what was hard and very difficult for me. But then there were other people on the left uh, who had like left the office who were um, very encouraging, very supportive. And then there were others who, uh, colleagues who were very supportive and, 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 and very gracious about it. And, and there were DAs who, who, DAs and former DAs who knew me, who contacted me and said, I can't imagine how hard this is for you to do. And they thanked me for doing it because they know who I am. I have tried over 50, uh, probably over 60 trials in my career. I've uh, mentored uh, young lawyers. I have uh, tried several, many uh, juvenile trials. Uh, I've represented thousands of people. I am an aggressive, aggressive defense attorney. And so people know who I am. But for some others, I understand that uh, they might not uh, forgive me for uh, standing up and, and speaking the truth because uh, they might have a personal uh, opinion on uh, a prosecutor being elevated um, uh, at, at that level. But, you know, Senator Harris is, she's a senator uh, and she left her mark on San Francisco that I think um, were uh, by and large groundbreaking as far as uh, behavioral health court, as far as CJC, as far as the youth adult court. Um, and so I think that that needs to be acknowledged despite the fact that we disagreed. We were in the streets as public defenders uh, marching at the Hall of Justice when her uh, managing attorney for the misdemeanor unit wanted to change a diversion guideline. And um, we fought back and people remember that. And of course, they remember how much we had to fight for these types of programs. So maybe they don't appreciate it, but I, I don't have any uh, regrets whatsoever. I believe that in speaking the truth, it's important and it's the right thing to do. One of the things, one of the biggest things that I saw people on the, from the left were criticizing her for when she was running herself for president last year. Um, actually has a Commonwealth Club connection in a way. And that is at a Commonwealth Club program, there's a video of her talking about this truancy program where parents of, of chronic truant uh, students could be fined and or jailed. Um, and that video clip has been, you know, was shared just all over the place as you can imagine. Um, from, so I, I wanted to kind of go into two things. One is from what I'm reading about it, uh, it sounds like you know no one was ever actually jailed under it. There were some fines, but there was a lot of working with parents to get them into, you know, compliance programs or whatever to get their kids back into school. Uh, do you know anything about that? And was that a result of pushback maybe from the public defender's office, or was that her intention anyway that she wasn't 
hoping to put people into prison. She was hoping to, you know, focus this on it because as she was saying, these are kids who are, you know, who desperately need that education to get them so they don't end up in kind of the, what is it, the school to prison, uh, you know, industry pipeline. Well, if you don't want kids to be in the pipeline of school to prison, I don't think the proper approach is prosecuting their parents whether the kids are not going to school. So I think that there's an inherent problem with taking a criminal uh, uh, justice approach to a, um, a socioeconomic uh, problem. Um, I have worked at Juvenile Hall that very, very many years ago, and I work there now. And um, it, it's, there's no justification for the criminal prosecution of parents with regard to truancy. Um, there just isn't. There has to be a different way. We're not serving our communities. If kids don't want to go to school, we're doing something wrong. I don't think it's necessarily the parents, okay? And I think that there are a lot of inequities in the public school system that I can go on and on about. I do recall getting truancy calls and be, as a parent and being very annoyed by them. And, uh, you know, at, at one point my dad was dying and I took one of my kids to, to say goodbye and I'm getting truancy notices or calls and I told them where to go. So, uh, you know, I'm empowered. I'm a lawyer. I have the wherewithal to fight back and not to, you know, be disabled by um, these types of accusations or um, calls or, you know, some people call it harassment. I'm, I'm all for the criticism of that. Was anybody ever incarcerated in San Francisco um, by Kamala for truancy? I believe the answer is no, okay? Um, I've done the research, I've asked uh, the, the even, well, I'm not gonna say that, but you can go to the courts, you can ask the presiding judge of the family court, and you will see that no one has been incarcerated for, uh, 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 no parent has been incarcerated for a child being truant in San Francisco. Um, did she seem to support that endeavor? Yes. Was it misguided? Yes. In my opinion, it was. Um, and if people want to um, say she shouldn't be vice president and Mike Pence ought to be because of that press conference or that video, then more power to them. I strongly disagree because I think there are more important points such as a point such as a woman's right to choose um, and you know, getting this, uh, this president out of office that's uh, more important than you know, a, a, a truancy law that was misguided. And I believe that she has um, said you know, that you know, she, she no longer supports that. Well, um... I can't believe it. We've already spent about an hour, uh, you know, talking about this. And, and thank you so much for going in depth, because uh, even in the Democracy Now! or the, the Madhouse segment, you know, I wanted to hear more about the, your experience, the facts, the Kamala Harris that you know, that you worked with. Um, so with that being said, I mean, she is the vice president, um, vice presidential candidate uh, under Joe Biden's ticket. And I think I think for some of us who are looking into um, you know ahead of the election, there are some hopes and there are some uh, thoughts about how we want to move forward in this country. How do you see you know what a Biden Harris um, administration or or leadership? How do you how do you see that shaping out? What what impact do you want to see immediately? I think you alluded to. Um, you know, there needs to be some change. And so for someone like yourself, a public defender, a parent, um, you know, a, a citizen of, of the United States who's impacted by a pandemic, uh, you know, all these things. How do you see a, a Biden-Harris, you know, a presidency? I, I, I believe it's essential. Um, I, I, we have to address climate change. We have to address income inequality. We have to address racism in the criminal justice system. Uh, the current administration, they have no interest in these matters. They don't have any interest in science. Uh, with regard to COVID, the, we know now, uh, based on the Woodward book, 
uh, how much, uh, how, how diabolical uh, the approach was. And, and it's not just misguided, it's diabolical. And we, we, there, people talk about climate change and an existential tr- threat. You know, COVID is an existential threat at this moment to this country. And we need leadership and we need honesty in government and we need openness in government. And we have a corrupt, corrupt administration. I mean, it's mind boggling and staggering what is going on in the White House. And for the way I see it is uh, this isn't about uh, Trump anymore. This is about an ideology of white supremacy at all costs. They will continue to support him or anyone um, who espouse these ideas. So the idea has, is, is larger, I think, than Trump. Trump is just a symbol of that, the, these uh, crazy, crazy ideas. And we are in a desperate situation where you have celebrities talking about not voting. And these are, you know, some are, uh, have millions and millions of followers. And I just don't understand how people don't see that we are in a, our democracy is being threatened um, by this administration. And it's, it's frightening to me. It's frightening what's going on. And um, I think that it would be a complete and total uh, reversal uh, when Biden and Harris uh, get into office. And I say when, I'm very, very hopeful uh, of that. Um, and I have to say, I did win a hundred dollar bet uh, in 2016 that Trump would win. So, <laughs> but I think that this time around uh, he will lose, but there, there's a threat of vote, you know, voting irregularities and all those things. So I think we need to come out strong as uh, pro- the progressives really need to, to rally and understand that we are a force as well. Um, there are more of us on the far left than there are on the far right. And we are more principled. So we might want to sit it out or we might want to not vote on principle, but I think that would be a grave mistake. This was not the point of your, your article, but uh, maybe it's a fun question. Um, assuming she is the new vice president of the United States, do you have any uh, suggestions for Governor Newsom as to who should uh, fill her seat until the next elections? Uh, I, I definitely believe that uh, Governor Newsom uh, needs to select somebody from the African-American community. I say that because when you look at the Senate and you see the makeup, the statistics are abysmal. Um, as far as African-American senators, even in the history of this country. Uh, So I think that we really need um, Governor Newsom to step up and uh, select somebody from the African-American community in order to make sure that um, the the voices of everyone um, is heard. And I think that right now in this time, with regard to what's happening in the criminal justice system, what's happening as far as this awakening of racism that's systemic in our country. We need somebody who is woke. We need somebody who understands these issues and who are gonna call it as it is in the Senate. And um, you're not gonna get that from just anybody. You need a strong voice for this community. Nikki, I wanna thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to be with us at the Commonwealth Club and on the program and for sharing your thoughts. Uh, I think these types of conversations are extremely important wherever you, you know, your position, uh, whatever it is, but to offer perspective and experience and, and truth uh, so that we can make an an informed decision come November 3rd. So um, hopefully there is a party we're celebrating, you know, in a massive way, uh, November 3rd and a party at your house. Uh, no, 
<laughs> virtually perhaps, but my kids don't go out and neither do I, not much. I go to court and that's about it. Oh, thank you. Th see, you know, parent, you need, you need a parent, you need a parental person, you know, like, like Nikki around to keep you grounded. Um, thank you all for joining us here on the program. We have lots more programming uh, coming up and uh, you can go to commonwealthclub.org for the full schedule and we'll leave John to the last words. Just wanted to repeat the thanks to you, Nikki. Thank you for joining us and to all of you watching and listening to us. Um, in fact, we've got a program tomorrow night at 7.30 p.m. Pacific time with Michelle and I, and we're going to be talking with Joshua Wong from Hong Kong, talk about democracy and, uh, and endangered. So uh, we hope you can join us for that program too. Thank you, everybody. Have a good day.